Yeah. Okay. Well, they're 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 working uh, on. Uh, well, they're 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 doing the wiring, whatever it is you you mentioned the other night. You know, so they're they're doing that right now. Uh, now you still did you still want to do something tomorrow afternoon? Okay. Yeah, yeah, just whatever whatever's good. I'm 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 real flexible. Okay. All right, that's that sounds good. Well, I'm uh I'm I'm ready <clears throat> just whenever you are then. All right, all right, I'm going to go lay my phone down then. All right, bye. All right, Kevin, just uh, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. And uh, thank you again for doing this today. Hello and welcome again to Anchor the Soul. I'm Mike Hickson. I want to welcome you to our program. Thank you for watching each week. We appreciate so much your kind comments. And we are grateful for the opportunity to come into your home to study with you. Today is no exception. I do want to encourage you to enroll in our free Bible correspondence program. We would love to assist you in your study of the Word of God. Again, it's free. All you have to do is reach out to us. You can call us, text us. Well, maybe not text, but you can call us, email us, write to us. And we will do our best to get you a program in the mail. You can do it at your own pace, send it back, we'll grade it, we'll send you another course, and again, I promise you, it'll help you in your knowledge of the Word of God, it will assist you in your spiritual journey, because after all, our goal is to learn what God wants us to do in this life. In our lesson today, I want to direct your mind to 1 Peter chapter 5, at verse 7. Peter there said, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. You know, we live in a world that is replete with human suffering. Matter of fact, I might be uh, bold enough to say today that there are some of you who are watching this telecast, that you are plagued by any number of physical, debilitating problems.
problems in life. I mean, look around. The world today is suffering. So many people are battling cancer. Some have heart disease. Others have, uh, they have been the recipients of some other form of illness. I mean, there are just so many, many things that plague the human family. Human suffering, a reality. I guess that's really the key, the point that we want to press today. Listen to what Job said many years ago. Job in chapter 14, verse 1, acknowledged this great fact. Man born of woman is a few days, and listen to this, and full of trouble. Did Job know something about human suffering? Well, the answer to that would be absolutely. If anyone knew something about the physical and mental toil of human suffering, then Job would have been, a, would have been the man, wouldn't he? I mean, after all, think about it. Kevin, can we start over? I'm sorry. <clears throat> <clears throat> One more time, I'm sorry, my bad. <clears throat> Hello and welcome again to Anchor the Soul. I'm Mike Hickson, so grateful to have the opportunity to come into your home Thank you for studying with us. Today, we're going to be talking about human suffering. But before we do that, I want to direct your mind to a thought or two that I think will help you in your spiritual journey. We are offering free Bible correspondence programs to anyone who is interested. Again, I would stress they're free of charge. We never ask for money. But we would love to help you in your study of the Word of God. Because after all, the psalmist said, your words are lamp unto my unto our feet, a light under our pathway. And so the Word of God is critical if we're going to be successful in this life. And so what we'd like to do is to assist you again in your study of the Word of God. All you have to do is call us. You can write us. You can email us. As soon as we get your information, we'll send you a course in the mail, fill it out, send it back. We'll grade it, and then we'll send you another course. And I promise you this, you will not be disappointed in this course, you'll not be disappointed that you're spending time reading, studying, and meditating on the truth of God. And so our goal is to help you in your journey in life. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5 at verse 7. Peter in the long ago said, Casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. I don't have to tell you that the world we live in is filled with problems and human suffering. There are so many people in the world today that are battling disease and illness and heartache and sorrow, sadness, discouragement, despondency, depression. After all, the world has been submerged in suffering since the garden. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2 after having created man, God instructed the first couple they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, the Bible tells us in chapter 3 that Adam and Eve succumbed to the overtures of the devil. As a result of that, sin entered into the world and all of the attendant miseries associated with sin. And so today, if anything, we only have a proliferation of problems and human suffering. I would imagine that some of you who are watching this telecast today are battling some type of illness, disease, and if not you, 
then you know someone who is. You know, back in Job chapter 14 at verse 1, Job wrote in the long ago, Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Do you think Job knew something about what he was writing? I think that if anyone had the qualifications to write about human suffering, Job would have been the man. I mean, after all, go back and look at the record. You remember in chapter 1, Job is identified as a godly man, one who feared God, turned away from evil, very conscientious man, concerned about his own family members. And yet, in a very short period of time, what happened to Job? Well, we know the Bible says he lost his children, ten children. Imagine burying ten children. He had seven sons, three daughters. And then the Bible says he lost a great deal of his wealth. Chapter 2 tells us that his body was plagued with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. And then his own wife failed to support him. She said, curse God and die. This man knew something about trials and tribulations in life, probably more so than anyone I've ever known. And yet, Job maintained his faith, his fidelity in Almighty God. Now, did he learn some things? Absolutely. You know, when we face trials and tribulations and suffering in this life, there are a couple of things that I think emerge out of that. Number one, the trials and the things that we face in this life can refine our character. In other words, they can be character building. For example, in Romans chapter 5, Paul talked about how tribulation leads or works perseverance. And then he said perseverance, character, character, hope. And all he's saying there is that when we face difficulties in life, that one of the byproducts of that is we develop a persevering, patient spirit. And then that produces character. And I would also add, add to this idea that not only does it refine our character, but it reveals our character. In other words, when you face troubles and trials in life, those troubles and trials really kind of set the stage or set the tone, if you please, for where you are in life. Shows you what you're made of, doesn't it? And there are many people, they have been literally to the school of hard knocks and they know something about being kicked around the block. So with that in mind, let's talk for a minute or two about the things that we learn in times of suffering. Now I want to begin by saying this. I don't know of anyone that relishes trials and troubles in life. You remember, for example, in James chapter 1, James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now that seems odd, doesn't it? That here's an inspired penman, and he is telling the readers in the first century, and really readers of every age, of every generation, to count it all joy in the face of the various trials of life. Now the various trials that he has in mind here are those outward trials common to all people, whether it be disease, illness, some type of disability. It might be economic reversal, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, on and on. But James said, count it all joy. I don't believe that James is saying that when we're in the midst of a storm in life, in other words, when we're facing an onslaught of difficulties. I don't think that we find joy and satisfaction in that. But I do believe that what 
James is saying is that when we come out on the other side, that we can then reflect upon those difficult times. And then we might ask ourselves this question, okay, what did I learn from that? Have I grown from that? You know, the trials of life, those trials can literally shake your faith, can't they? Do you think when Job faced those difficulties and trials in life, do you think they had some impact on his faith? I know that his wife, it impacted her faith because she said, curse God and die. And Job said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we not accept good at the hand of God? Shall we not also accept adversity? In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So I believe that, no doubt, Job was shaken by what happened. I would have been shaken, wouldn't you? I mean, if you had buried ten children, lost your wealth, lost a lot of your economic standing in life, and then you lose your health, you've lost the support of your faithful mate. I mean, wouldn't those things trouble you? Well, the answer is yes. But the things that we learn, again, we come out on the other side, we look back and we say, okay, what did I learn from all that? What are some things that, what are some things that I can take away in a positive way from what I've been dealing with? And so the trials of life, yes, they can shake our faith, but sadly, sometimes they break people's faith. There have been any number of folks that have, they have given in to the difficulties and trials that they faced. They've raised the white flag and said, you know what, I've had enough, I'm done. Did you know that there are people that have cursed God? They've asked God, why in the world did you allow this to happen? Listen, you've got to understand that we live in a world and for every action there's a corresponding reaction. I mentioned the trials and problems and sufferings of this present age. All of that goes back to the garden. It's not God's fault. The devil's the one that brought all this mess into the world. We're having to deal with the after effects of the consequences of sin in the Garden of Eden. And so we live in a world that is subjected to human suffering. What about what about Jesus, God's only Son? You know, sometimes people say, well, where was God when I was suffering? Same place He was when His Son suffered in heaven. And you remember it was said of Jesus, who in the days of His flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him who was able to save Him from death. And the Hebrew writer said, and He was heard in that He feared. And so don't ever, Charge God with your problems in life. Understand the source of those problems, that they're a part of life, as Job said in the long ago. Listen, at best, life is tough. And the trials of life, they can shake our faith, they can break our faith, but they can also be used to build our faith. And so what we're trying to do is to think about some things from a positive vantage point that will help us to learn from the difficulties that we face in this life. So number one, I would say first and foremost, we have to learn to depend upon the Lord. We've got to put our trust in God. Now I want to go back again and look at Job. You remember in chapter 13, verse 15, here's what Job said, in light of all that he faced, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job said, you know what? 
no matter what happens in my life, I've got to learn to trust in God. That is one of the things that we must take away from human suffering. Our trust needs to be in God and in God alone. For example, you remember the psalmist in Psalm 46? He said, God is a refuge, a very present help in trouble. The psalmist there recognized that his dependence needed to be upon the God of heaven to understand that God is a refuge for those who are troubled in life. David, David in Psalm 56 said, whenever I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. Are there times in your life when you're facing some unknown circumstance? Do you have fears and anxieties and troubles in life? Yes. I mean, many of us, we face uncertainty in life and we wonder about, okay, what's going to happen next? And yet what David said no long ago is, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And listen to what he said down in verse 9 of Psalm 56. He said, this I know God is for me. David realized that his trust was in God, that he had to put his trust in God, and that God had his back. That ought to be of tremendous encouragement to us. Let me give you another example. Do you remember Paul, the great apostle? Paul was a missionary, a preacher, a teacher, an inspired penman. He was an apostle of the Lord. He went about doing good from city to city. And yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you remember Paul said that there was given unto him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, for the purpose of buffeting him. He said, lest I be exalted above measure, because he had received an abundance of revelations. And so and really I think what God was saying is, this thorn in the flesh will keep you humble and dependent upon me. Well, the Bible says that Paul prayed three times that God would remove that thorn in the flesh. You know what God said? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so here's the Apostle Paul learning something about depending upon God because I think what God was saying to him in the long ago is simply this. Paul, I want you to learn to depend upon me and me alone. Remember the words of Solomon in the long ago? When he said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your paths. So, learning to trust in God. Listen again to what Peter said. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter said, Casting all your care, A-L-L. That little three-letter word is very significant. Because Peter said, casting all your care on Him. And here's why he said you need to do that because He cares for you. Don't ever think God doesn't care. You put your trust in Him, you anchor your life to Him, and I can tell you this, you'll get through the difficulties of life. You will come out on the other side and you will realize that God stood with you through those difficulties. There's a second thought. When we face trials and tribulations in life, when we are in the throes of human suffering, isn't it the case that we learn something about the uncertainty of life. Several years ago, one of my good, good friends, matter of fact, he had been a mentor to me for many years, encouraged me so much as a preacher, a teacher, 
I looked up to him, respected his knowledge of the Word of God. And I remember talking to him on one occasion. He called me to tell me that he had cancer. And he said, on a Sunday, he said, I'm watching the Super Bowl and all is well. The very next day, he said, I learned that I had cancer. He lived 18 months. That was in February of the year. He died the following July, 18 months later. The uncertainty of life. Solomon said, who knows what a day may bring forth? You know, James in James chapter 4 compared life to a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It could very well be the case that today life is well, life is grand, everything's going your way. And then the next thing you know, life's upside down. You're facing some type of debilitating disease or illness. Or maybe you've got a loved one that's facing some difficulties in life. And at one time, all had been well in their life. Just a little over a year ago, my wife found out that she has a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And she's been battling that over the past year. And she has been through 20 weeks of chemotherapy, surgery, radiation. She's now doing another round of chemo. And, you know, I look back over the past year and I think about this time last year, everything was great in life. I mean, we had the normal ups and downs and highs and lows and joys and frustrations of life. But for the most part, life was good. And then, just like that, everything changed. And sometimes you wonder, you know, will life ever go back to being what it once was? Don't know. But I know this, I have to trust in God. I've got to put my dependence upon Him, and I've got to learn something about the uncertainty of life. You remember in Luke chapter 12, Jesus taught a parable trying to impress upon the people of His day the importance of putting their faith in God and not just in the uncertainties of life and business, etc. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said that men ought to take heed and beware of covetousness. He said, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. Sometimes life's good, business is good, and we forget about God. And so in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a parable about a rich farmer whose barns were overflowing. And he said, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull, pull down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I'll bestow all my crops and goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But here's what God said. He said, you're a fool. Because tonight, tonight, you're going to step out into eternity. And here's the question. The things that you've accumulated in life, whose will they be? No, our treasure needs to be in heaven, not here on earth. Now, nothing wrong with engaging in business and trying to make a living. Nothing wrong with, with trying to have a thriving business. But if we build our business and forget about God, we've got a real problem in life. And so this man needed to learn something or should have learned something about the uncertainty of life before death intervened. That's all I'm saying now. You need to understand that we live in an uncertain world. No one's promised tomorrow. You may be here today, gone tomorrow. So you've got to learn to appreciate the uncertainties of life. Then there's a third thing. Don't you think that when we face trials and troubles in life and when we're plagued with suffering, 
that we learn something about the power of God's Word and how important that is to us. For example, in Romans 15, verse 4, Paul said, whatever things were written before time were written for our learning. Now listen to this, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. What are you saying, Paul? He's saying that we can take the Word of God and we can go back and look, for example, at the Old Testament. And some of God's great people in days gone by, they faced some tough times. And as we explore their lives and as we examine the things that they faced in this life, we can come to an understanding, or rather we can come to appreciate what they faced, and we can learn from those things. That's all he's saying. I mentioned David a moment ago. And David, as you well know, had some highs and lows in life. He faced some tough, tough times. A lot of tough times. And yet, David serves us by way of reminder, by way of an example of how we can get through tough times. David being one, the Apostle Paul being another. I mentioned him. You know, you go back and you look at the early church. In her infancy, a lot of God's great people suffered immensely. And so I can go back and look at the Scriptures and I can draw strength from what they faced, from what they encountered in this life. And so when you go back and you start reading and studying and meditating on the truth of God, go back and live with Jeremiah for a while. Go back and spend some time with David and walk with him as he was in the valleys of life. Go back and walk with the psalmist in Psalm 46 when he talked about how God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the psalmist there facing some tough times. So there are lots of things that we can learn from the Scriptures. Now there's another, I think, important lesson that we can learn from facing troubles and trials in life. And that has to do with the privilege and the power of prayer. One of the great byproducts, or really one of the great spiritual blessings that we enjoy in Christ, is that in Christ we have been endowed with all spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now listen to what he said. Every spiritual blessing known to man, known to man resides in one place. Where is that? It's in Christ. Now I've said this before, I want to say it again. In the book of Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this expression in Christ or its equivalent some 35 times, which tells me that if you're in Christ, you are in a very special place. Well, why is that? Because all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Well, how do you get into Christ? You've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord said, except you believe, you'll die in your sins. John 8, verse 24. You've got to be willing to repent, turn away from a life of sin. Peter said that on Pentecost Day, Acts 2, verse 38. And then to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you're immersed in water. When you're baptized into Christ, Peter said you enjoyed the remission, the remittance, the forgiveness of sins. As Paul said in the long ago, he was instructed by Ananias to arise, be baptized, and wash away his sins. 
So once you do that, God then puts you in the church, Acts 2, verse 47. And here's the real beauty. Once you're in Christ, all the blessings that are to be had are in that one place. One of which is the privilege of prayer. Peter said, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. How much time do you spend in prayer to God? You know, to think that as a child of God, we have the privilege of approaching the Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer of the universe. I don't have the luxury picking up the telephone and calling some important dignitary or political official. I don't have access to some of the important people of this day and time. But I can tell you this, as a child of God, I have the privilege of going into the presence of the King and I can go before the throne of God and I can lay before Him my hurts, my difficulties, my trials, my tribulations, my broken heart, and God hears and God assists. The Hebrew writer said that we're to draw boldly under the throne of grace. Why? That we might receive mercy and find grace to help, listen to him, in time of need. You just think about that for a minute. Peter said, casting all, A-L-L, all your cares on Him. And why? Because He cares for you. No one cares for you like God does. And God is saying, I want to hear from you. You remember Jesus during His earthly ministry spent a lot of time in prayer. For example, in Mark 1, we find Jesus rising early in the morning, going out to a solitary place, and there praying. And then, of course, before He selected the apostles, He spent the night in prayer, Luke 6. But go with Him to Gethsemane. And you remember in the garden, Jesus was praying to the Father. Three times the Son of God said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Luke tells us in chapter 22 of his record, he said, and being in agony, listen to him, he prayed more earnestly. Is it not the case that when we face the trials of life, that yes, we have the privilege of prayer, but what we ought to do is spend more time on our knees praying to God, recognizing that what John said is true. He said, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, listen to Him, He hears us. What a blessing to know that Jehovah God hears our prayers. Then let me give you one final thought here. And that is one of the other, I think, very essential things that we learn from suffering is patience or perseverance. In James chapter 5, James would say, you have heard the patience or perseverance of Job. We mentioned Job at the onset of our study. We've looked at his life. And then, go back to James chapter 1. There James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith, listen to him, works perseverance or patience. And patience, he said, patience breeds what? a mature, a complete individual. And the idea is that through these trials and difficulties, our faith is made stronger. Those trials can be used as what we might call stepping stones to greater heights, spiritually speaking. And so 
to just learn something about the importance of a persevering spirit. You know, Christianity, it's not a sprint to the finish, but rather we might, by way of analogy, compare it to a marathon. They tell me that when you run in a marathon, that you'll hit a point at some point in the race. They call it the wall. And you want to give up. You want to just quit. But you've got to fight through that wall so that you can finish the race. Well, that's the same way in Christianity. It's tough, yes. Are there trials? Absolutely. But here's the key. To maintain that persevering spirit. To say, you know what? I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in. And I'm not going to give out. Listen, I hope that what we've said today has helped you, has benefited you. We appreciate you. Thank you for watching this program. Hope to see you back here again next week. Until then, God bless. <clears throat>
Whoa, what's up, little friend? How are you doing? I didn't know you were here. What are you doing back there? Huh? Uh, I got to go in here and tape a lesson. I got to go in here and preach for a minute. When did you get here? Huh? When did you get here? Oh, okay. I got you. Well, uh, I didn't even know he was here. He just came running over. Hey, day, day, day. All right, Kevin, uh, I guess I'm ready when you are. The, uh, <clears throat> the title of this lesson will be The Power of a Transformed Life. The Power of a Transformed Life. And we'll do Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. <clears throat> once again to Anchor the Soul. I'm Mike Hickson. I want to welcome you. Thank you for watching this telecast. We appreciate so much you watching. We hope and pray that what is said on this program assists you, helps you in your spiritual life. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 in just a moment or two as we think about the theme, the power of a transformed life. And so I hope you'll stay tuned for the next few minutes as we explore this great text in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Before we press on, though, I do want to say this. If you're interested in taking one of our free Bible correspondence programs, we would love to have you enroll as one of our students. All you have to do is call us, write us. You can email us. Once we get your information, we will send you a course in the mail. Fill it out at your own pace. Send it back to us, and we will get you another course in the mail ASAP. We would love to have you as one of our students. And I can tell you this, it will help you in your knowledge of the Word of God because after all, our goal is to grow in grace and knowledge. We want to learn what God wants from us. We want to know something, something about God and His will for us in life. And so let me encourage you to take 
opportunity, take the opportunity to become one of our students. Again, it's free. You don't owe us anything. We never ask for money. And so we would love to have you as a part of our Bible Correspondence Program. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the power of a transformed life. You know, one of the great things about Christianity is that it deals in the present, doesn't it? You know, there are a lot of folks in the world today that if you look back at their life and you begin to examine the crooks and crannies in their life, you would say, you know what, they had a lot of trouble. They lived a hard life, maybe even what we would call a bad life. But then, through their obedience to the gospel, they became a different person. You know, it's like the past and the present, there's just no correlation there. Paul is a great example of that, isn't he? I mean, you remember when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he talked about how he had been a blasphemer, persecutor. He said, an insolent man, but all the things that he did that were directed at the church, he did in ignorance. Matter of fact, he even cites that fact that he had lived in unbelief. But then he said, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul said, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And listen to this. Paul said, of whom I'm chief. I think what Paul was saying to people of every age is that if we were to somehow look up in the dictionary the word sinner, that his picture would be right beside the definition. Paul had been a Jew, a zealous Jew, had lived in all good conscience before God, was a persecutor of those who were followers of the way, made havoc of the church, as Luke said in Acts chapter 9. And yet following his conversion, what a tremendous servant he became. I mean, you look at the past and then when you begin to look at his changed life, he was a different guy, wasn't he? I mean, this guy that had been so militant, this individual that had persecuted the church, had done everything within his power to destroy the church of Almighty God, and now, after having been baptized into Christ, his sins being washed away, he becomes a militant soldier in the army of Christ. That's what the gospel does to people. That's what the gospel can do for people. I like what Paul said in Romans 1.16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, God's Word has what we might call transforming power. God's Word can literally change the hearts and lives of people. Listen to what Jesus said, John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. I'm talking about the Word of the living God. The Hebrew writer said that God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word has the ability to cut to the heart of the matter. God's Word has the ability to penetrate the hardest of hearts, if we'll allow that to happen. So, let's think for a minute or two about the power of a transformed life. And I want to begin by, first of all, calling attention to the fact that Paul deals with a very important principle. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he deals with this idea of being dead in sin. 
dead in sin. And so, as we talk about dead in sin, let's just first and foremost talk about the condition of a sinner. Let me just sum it up in one word. Lost. Lost. I mean, that's it. Those who are living in sin are lost. Paul said, Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, And you he has made alive, who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins. Do we really understand the magnitude of what it means to be lost? You know, in Luke 15, Jesus told a triad of parables. In each of those parables, He stresses the importance of that which was lost, the lost sheep. The shepherd left the 99 and searched diligently until he found that one straying sheep. The lady that had ten coins and lost one did everything within her power to retrieve that lost coin. And then the third parable, the parable of the lost son. That son went out into a distant country, spent everything that had been entrusted into his care. Finally, the Bible says he came to himself after having grazed with the pigs in the pig pen. He realized that, you know, his father's servants had, better, had a better life than he did. And so he said, I'll arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no more longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. You remember when he came home, the father ran, fell on his neck, kissed him, had compassion on him, and said, This my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what's it mean to be lost? In Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 12, Paul said that those who are outside a covenant relationship with God, number one, they're without hope. Number two, they're without God. I mean, can you imagine trying to navigate your life through this difficult and tough world without the Lord? I mean, to be in a situation where, number one, you don't have any hope, and number two, you don't have God at your side? The Bible tells us that sin is a reality in the world in which we live. I know, I get it. The world says, you know what, sin's not that big of a deal. The world says that this whole concept of sin and unrighteousness, that, that's outdated, archaic, old-fashioned. Well, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, Paul said, the Gentile world, they're under sin. In chapter 2, he said, the Jewish world, they're under sin. In chapter 3, he said, here's the conclusion, both Jew and Greek, they're all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. The word sin literally means a missing of the mark. John said that those who, who commit sin transgress the law, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. What law? The law of God. You mean to tell me that there is a divine standard and I must live in accordance with that divine standard? That's exactly right. And when your life doesn't meet the criteria and set forth in that divine standard, what happens? sin. You are a sinner. Now, the whole concept of sin, well, it's a universal problem, yes, but there is an undeniable consequence associated with sin. Listen to what 
Ezekiel said in the long ago, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul said, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So there is collateral damage associated with a life of sin. What is that? It's called separation from God throughout all of eternity. Those who live in sin, those who do not obey the gospel of Christ, they'll be cast into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And so, number one, the condition of a sinner. Oh, they're lost. But then, secondly, the conduct of a sinner. This has to do with living in sin. Now again, I know that there are a lot of folks in the world today, they want to minimize this whole concept of sin and unrighteousness. And what they want you to think is that it really doesn't matter how you live. I mean, you're the master of your own ship. You choose what you want to do. I get it. We all make choices. We have that freedom. God has endowed us with human volition. The fact of the matter is, sometimes we make good choices, sometimes we make not so good choices. And so, listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He said, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. He said, according to the prince of the power of the air. According, listen to him, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once walked or conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Paul first deals with the Gentiles, and then he now turns attention to those who were Jews. And he said, look, we're no better off than the Gentile people. We ourselves once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, we immersed ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind. And he said, and were by nature children of wrath. The idea there is that here are people that have lived a life of habitual sin. It's become second nature to them. He's not saying that you're inheriting sin from your parents or ancestors. That idea is debunked in Scripture. No, Ezekiel said, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. No, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. But Paul here is saying that we make choices in life. And what we do is immerse ourselves in the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, as John said, and the pride of life. We hook our wagon to the world, and we live according to the world, and we're trying to gratify the flesh. I mean, think about this. The battlefield, spiritually speaking, is between the ears, isn't it? And so what we think and what we see, we try to gratify with what? With the flesh. And so those who choose to live in sin, they are identified by Paul as lost people. That's a frightening thought. I mean, you just think about stepping out onto the plains of eternity separated from God. Remember what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What do you think he's saying there? I think he's stressing the fact that if you step outside this world unprepared to meet God, it is a thing fearful beyond belief. 
you just can't begin to wrap, well, you just can't begin to understand the magnitude of all, of, of well, of facing God in that condition. Now, there's a second thing I want to talk about today. First, this idea of being dead in sin, of being lost in sin, of living in sin. And by the way, I mean, you look around in the world today, and many of the problems that we're facing in this world are caused by one thing, sin. Every night on the news, somebody said to be getting killed or robbed or shot or raped. I mean, it's just one thing after another, isn't it? Who's behind all of that? The devil is. And people are living in sin and they're destroying their lives and sadly they're destroying the lives of many, many other people. And that's why the devil is said to walk about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is intent on destroying the world. The devil wants to destroy your soul. The devil wants to do everything within his power to destroy that eternal soul that God has housed within your human body. Now, there's a second thought. First, to be dead in sin, but secondly, to be delivered by the Savior. What about this idea of being delivered by or through a Savior? Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That was his heaven-sent mission, wasn't it? Didn't Jesus say, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me, John 6, 38? Didn't Jesus say in the long ago, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give His life a ransom for the many? Yes, He did. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God would have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for sin. So Jesus came to save people. In Matthew chapter 1, prior to the birth of Jesus, the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Fear not to take unto you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son, you'll call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. That was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth, to die for the sins of the human family. So with regard to being delivered by the Savior. Let me just talk for a minute or two about the basis of our redemption, the basis of our salvation. There are two really what I would call pillars of Christianity. On the one hand, you have the marvelous love of God. On the other hand, you have the matchless grace of God. So listen to what Paul said, Ephesians 2, verse 4. He said, but God who is rich in mercy. Now hear him. For the great love wherewith he loved us. Paul here accentuating the great love of God. I mean, you look at the scriptures over and over again. And there's one conclusion that you will have to draw, and that is that God loves the human family. So much so that He has invested in the human family. Is He interested in us? Absolutely. Well, you know, talk's cheap, isn't it? So the Lord not only declared His love for us, but the Lord demonstrated His love 
for us. Let me just cite a couple of passages, I think, that reinforce this idea. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What about Romans chapter 5? When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, But God commends His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died, paid the price for sin on Calvary. The medium of exchange, His precious blood, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter said, You've been redeemed not with, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but rather with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Peter would also say in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. So, number one, to understand something about the marvelous love of God. Don't you like what John said about God, His very nature, His character? God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He said, here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the covering for our sins. No wonder He said in chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. So Paul here said that God, number one, is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us. I think it's very important to really emphasize the fact that God's love for us is described by Paul as great love. But then what about His matchless grace? Paul said, But God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. He said, By grace are you saved. He went on to say, look at Ephesians chapter 2. He said, He raised us up together, made us sit together with Him in heavenly places, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. Three times in this context, Paul stresses the grace of God. How would you define grace? The unmerited favor of God? I had a, I had a professor in college that defined grace as God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. That is the story of the cross. God standing in our place. Wasn't it Paul who said, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him? And think about what Paul said, Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation to every man. Christianity is undergirded by the love of God and the grace of God. Those two components are essential within the fabric of Christianity and the hope that we have. You, matter of fact, the whole basis behind which God was motivated to reach out to a lost and dying world was His love. Now, He's demonstrated His grace toward us. Go back and look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3 again. You remember when Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden? They were instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. In chapter 3, the record says they both transgressed God's law. And so in verse 15, God began unveiling His redemptive plan. 
You've got to understand that God had a plan in place before He ever laid the foundation of the earth. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 1 in verse 4. And has adopted us as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. And that's found in Ephesians chapter 1 as well. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, Who verily foreordained Him before the world began. That's talking about Christ. John said that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So God had a plan in place. God would never have reached out to us as members of the human family and devised a plan whereby we might be saved were it not for His great love. His grace, yes, Genesis 3.15. God demonstrating His grace and compassion to fallen man. And so in Genesis 3.15 we have, now it's not directly stated, but we have implied in that verse His great grace. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That wasn't the first time God demonstrated grace to the human family. First time the Word's found, but not the first time that God exercised grace toward His creation. And so, Paul here accentuating the grace of Almighty God. Let me just add this very quickly. Wherever God's grace goes, it's always accompanied by divine teaching. Genesis chapter 6, you remember? Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God was about to destroy the world by means of a flood because every imagination of the thought of man's heart had become corrupt. It was only evil continually, as the record says. The earth was filled with violence. The earth was corrupt before God. God said, the end of all flesh has come before me. I'll destroy man whom I've created. And so God instructed Noah, Noah, I want you to build an ark of gopher wood. The Bible says in Genesis 6, verse 22, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. So do you have God's grace? Yes, you do. Do you have divine instructions whereby Noah and his family could be saved? Yes. The Hebrew writer said, By faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear. Noah was instructed what to do to be saved from the flood. And then faith. His faith was acted upon. It wasn't a dead faith. It wasn't faith only. But rather, by faith, he was obligated to do what God instructed him to do. And so you have God's grace, God's instructions. You have faith, and then you have obedience, don't you? Because the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. Now I heard a fellow on the radio the other day saying, Raised the question, what must I do to be saved? He said, you can't do anything. Well, you know, in Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us that Peter and the apostles preached the very first sermon on Pentecost Day. And the Bible tells us that they were pricked, cut to the heart, Acts 2, verse 37. And they asked Peter and the other disciples, the other brethren, what shall we do? Now, you know, I don't read anything in Acts chapter 2 about Peter saying, Where'd you ever get the idea that there's something you've got to do? I mean, where did you ever come to that conclusion? How'd you come to that conclusion? You know what Peter said? He said, you need to repent. And he said, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And he said, if you do that, then God will forgive your sins. You'll be added to the church, Acts 2.47. And so in that context, again, what do you have? You have faith, 
You have a manifestation of God's grace going back to Calvary. You have divine instructions and you have obedience, don't you? Sure you do. Those principles are found throughout Scripture. And so Paul here accentuates the marvelous, matchless grace of the living God. Now there's a third thing I want to share with you in our study very quickly. It has to do with the duty of a saint. Paul writes in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works. That word, workmanship, we are God's workmanship. The idea is that we are God's masterpiece. This word, matter of fact, we get our word poem from masterpiece here. And the idea is we are God's piece of art. We are God's artwork. Paul said we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now you go back to Genesis chapter 1. It was God who said, let there be light. It was God who created man in His own image and likeness. Well, God is the creator, yes, in the physical realm. But He is also the author of creation in the spiritual realm. Paul said we're His workmanship. In other words, when we obey the gospel of Christ, when we die to sin through repentance, when we're buried with Christ in baptism, we rise to walk in newness of life. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we are God's workmanship, but also we are God's workmen. And the idea is that we are God's hands, His feet, His mouth, we are God's eyes. Listen to the marching sounds of the Great Commission. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. We have been saved by Almighty God to serve Him. Where? In His kingdom. And the things that we do in His behalf, we do to His glory. Matthew 5, verse 16. Listen, thank you for being a part of our program today. Hope to see you back here again next week. Until then, God bless you. Man, I appreciate it, Kevin. We got two good, good lessons knocked out, and uh, Lord willing, we can do two more tomorrow, hopefully and prayerfully. Hey, Kevin, you think that's okay today? Okay. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. Well, uh, uh, so tomorrow...